Greetings to those who watch below. As it's a new month, it is also time for a new roundup of true terrifying paranormal tales. This month we also have an update from a previous story, The White Lady of Burger King, that you can find in my recent video of terrifying night shift encounters. But before we get to the stories, I'd like to give a huge shout out and say thank you to those who dwell below. Steffi Ray, Wicked Witch, Jess Black Curtain, Lisa Watts, Lefty Kim, and Christina Groves. Thank you. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the stories. The White Lady of Burger King Isn't Alone Anymore by Seaman710 So much has happened in the past several months that this second part just keeps getting longer, so I'm going to have to start by saying that by now, there isn't a single person who has worked the night shift that doesn't have a story. We have named the ghosts. There is the lady in white, we call Helena, a tall man named Slim, a shadow figure named Let's Never Meet That Thing, and Peeping Tom, the affectionate name I've given to the playroom ghost. I'll start by talking about Slim. Slim started passing around when my manager confirmed that the voice she was hearing now daily in the morning was male. This was the first we'd heard about it, but not the last. Things escalated to the night shift the night we found this out. We were closing the lobby for the night, and just turned out the lights when I saw him. A tall man in the cover of the darkness. It was the clearest picture I had ever gotten of a ghost here. He was tall, at least six feet, with slicked back hair and a clean press suit. What immediately struck me was how angry the man looked. To say the least, I nearly jumped out of my skin, but what scared me most was that it was a full minute before he seemingly vanished into thin air, still glaring daggers at me. Since then, he's been one of our most active spectral residents. People claim to hear a male voice near the bathrooms especially. It seems to have a thing for the aforementioned manager. When her kids were visiting, one was asking about our ghosts, and mentioned that many times in the bathroom, she could hear a man talking on the other side of the wall. He is truly creepy. Given we do live in Vegas, I doubt that this is a mobster, hence the generic monster name we've given him. He's harmless, but the glare that always accompanies him, and his desire to stay in the shadows of our lobby, gives me the chills. Too many to count. Next, I'll talk about by far my most terrifying experience. Sadly, I wish I could have recorded my one encounter with a shadow person, but I was too stunned to do so. Recently, our ghosts have been playing with our security cameras. It all started with one truly terrifying night. Everyone had gone home for the night, and I was staying late with some last-minute counts, when something caught my eye. There was a figure, or rather, a shape on the camera feed. At first I suspected a bug, but to my astonishment, and horror, it took a human shape. Before I knew it, I was watching this figure calmly walk from one feed to the next, walking the length from the back room to the front register, before disappearing through a wall. I went to check everything that night. Every door was locked, every window. The bathrooms were empty, the playroom was empty. I couldn't get out of there fast enough. It was enough that my general manager said she wouldn't have blamed me if I had quit on the spot. 
this was just the beginning of our video issues. From then on, all manner of apparitions have appeared on feed. From a massive colourful radiating light that will come through on some nights, to a strange visitor I jokingly call Peeping Tom, who seems to enjoy the playroom. Peeping Tom is actually how our stories got credence. It has turned a sceptic into a believer. As we watched someone clearly playing in our currently closed playroom, we both went to check on it. Both still saw it on the camera as we did, and of course, to our abject horror in person, no one was there. He only shows up on the video feeds. I haven't quite figured that out yet. Things are now so normal that we've just started to adjust, but they are obviously getting much spookier. But Helena has done the scariest thing I can speak of, by far the most terrifying of all. We thought she and the others simply stuck to the lobby. Hell, I even believe they leave us in peace. But recently, we've been under renovation with our lobby currently closed. We hadn't seen any of them in days, and I assumed the shadow figure was a one-time occurrence. Two nights ago, I was putting away food when I was greeted by Helena, the Lady in White, inches from my face between the spaces of our food trays. I had to stifle a scream and spook the entire staff, as I was the only one who saw her. But now, we all know that the ghosts are very much in control of who sees them, where they are seen, and where they are. I don't know why it frightens me so much. They aren't hurting anybody. But having thought the kitchen was our safe space, it certainly was not comforting. So, greetings from Las Vegas's very haunted little Burger King. I hope maybe I'll have some crazier stories on the horizon. But until next time, I think we'll keep the lights on in the lobby for a while. My Great Grandmother's Secret and the Ruby Necklace by Virulent Peach My maternal great-grandmother was by all accounts a kind but very unique woman. She had an aversion to the sun, believed in old-world superstitions, and washed my infant grandmother's hair with lemon juice to keep bad spirits away, and of course, to preserve its infant blondness. She was fiercely loyal to those around her, even confronting one of my grandmother's childhood bullies in the classroom in the middle of instruction. Now, parents couldn't get away with this, but we all applaud her for taking a stand. According to my great-aunt, she also had a secret she hid from our family and from the world. I would only discover it by chance on a day that forever changed my life. Until that day, I never believed in the paranormal. I was not prepared for one experience I had, however, while researching my great-grandmother's life and our family's history in my great-aunt's house. The house where my great-aunt and grandmother grew up with their parents in the 1930s. The house remained in our family since, and only one of the family lived in it before ours. Built in 1890, the house is a two-story folk Victorian, with pattern trim around the top, evoking a gingerbread house. The front of the house faces the street, and is built upon a hill such that the back of the house appears to be taller than the front. Every room has multiple windows, the sides of the house are pointed gables, and most windows are draped with old-fashioned curtains. It has not been painted in years, and is a sickly beige colour with chipped paint. There is a porch in front, which is falling off the front of the house, 
caved in where people stand while waiting for the front door to be answered. From both inside and out, the house would give anyone the creeps. Approaching the house from the front, one might swear they see the curtains swaying, even when the windows are closed, and dark shadows fluttering by. The day after Christmas in 2016, while dropping by my great-aunt, now in her 90s, back home after visiting us for Christmas, I decided to spend some time in her home, searching for old family photographs and heirlooms. There were significant gaps in our family tree. I knew little to nothing about my great-grandmother's family. All I knew was that she had three siblings, one of whom died very young of tuberculosis, and that their mother was sent back to Portugal from Ellis Island because she was ill with a communicable disease, for which there was, at the time, no cure. I had never seen pictures of any of these people, but I wanted to. According to family legend, she spoke two languages, Portuguese and another language whose name was lost in the sands of time that her husband and children could not understand. When you walk in the front door of the house, you enter into a dark, spooky hallway, with a stairwell to the right that curves leftward, and the hallway to the left, which turns a corner. Immediately to the left of the front door is a boarded-up door leading to the living room, and there are piles of papers, boxes, and other assorted items of little significance scattered against the walls. My elderly great-aunt clearly doesn't throw anything away. Upon walking down the hallway in front, one comes to a door that was once a nice dining room, but now there are papers piled upon the old dining room table, such that it is no longer recognisable as a table. Off the dining room is the living room and a kitchen, as well as a door leading to the back stairwell. The second floor is nearly a replica of the first, given that the house was originally built for two families. There is no telling what items exist in the house from time immemorial, and I couldn't wait to find out. Still, I stared up the front stairs, feeling dread and foreboding. The upstairs hallway was so dark that I could barely see anything until more than halfway up the stairs. I was instructed not to turn on any lights in the upstairs hallway, for the wiring had not been replaced in decades, and a light switch at the top, a push-button switch from the 50s, would produce a sharp electric shock, and possibly ignite. I climbed the dark stairs, feeling as if something was watching me and would jump out at me. With dark wooden doors on all sides, slightly cracked open, and a cold draught coming down from the attic, I felt as if there was a malevolent force convincing me to turn around and head back down the stairs. I kept going. I came to a small room with sickly yellow walls and boxes upon boxes of old photographs and documents. The room was brightly lit, in great contrast to the hallway. For a moment I felt safe. I went through box after box, finding nothing of interest. After initially believing that I would need to go up to the attic to find any family photographs, I found a box with nothing but a large photograph in an old-fashioned frame, facing downward in the box. I picked it up and turned it toward me. The photo, dated 1905, showed a young woman with a face both familiar and strange. Her hair was tightly curled and pulled back, and she wore a cinnamon-coloured brown dress and a ruby necklace. Her facial expression was serious yet serene, and I saw something of myself in her face. 
Based on the name on the back of the photo, I recognised her as my great-great-grandmother. In the back of the frame slipped out a second photo that almost seemed purposely hidden there, of this same woman sitting in a chair holding a small child. In this photo she looked different and clearly darker-skinned, as was the child on her lap. Her coarse hair was styled upward, with an old-fashioned clip to pin it back. The photo resembled ones you see from old Louisiana. This was not a photo of an early 20th century European immigrant family. If only I'd always known that one of the great horrors of history, the legacy of one of mankind's cruelest sins against humanity, coursed through my mother's veins, and ultimately, my own. I instantly realised what my great-grandmother had been hiding. Details about her life that had once seemed insignificant, and were easily brushed off with no second thought, came back to me, and fit together like puzzle pieces. Now intrigued, I began to search the rest of the room for older photographs and heirlooms, but first I needed to put the photograph back. I snapped a photo of it with my iPhone camera, which I still have to this day, and placed it in its box. When I bent over the box, I saw something that caused me to gasp. Sweat poured down my face. My great-great-grandmother's ruby necklace, from the photo, sat at the bottom of the box. I knew it was not in there five minutes prior. I was afraid to pick it up, and everything inside me told me not to pick it up. You can guess what I did. I picked up the necklace and studied it in my hands. It looked perfectly preserved after all of these years, shiny and beautiful, as if it could have been new. I initially intended to bring it home as a present for my mother, and to see how it might look. I picked it up and placed it around my own neck. Over the course of the next minute, as I studied the necklace around my neck, the sky outside turned to clouds, and the once brightly lit room got dark and foreboding. Out of nowhere, I hear a hissing whisper come from behind me, followed by the words, It's a lie. The voice was sinister and deep, and I could only distinguish that it belonged to a woman. My heart racing, I placed my head in my hands, refusing to turn around. I did not know what I would see if I turned around and stared into that dark, creepy hallway. Part of me expected the attic door, previously slightly cracked, to be wide open and something to jump out. All I knew was that I needed to take this necklace off. I tried to take the necklace off, but as I tried to lift it off my neck, it suddenly felt like it weighed ten times more. I grabbed the back of it, but it just would not be easily lifted. It didn't dig into my neck or cut me, initially, but when I clasped it in my hands to lift it up, it was as if its weight increased exponentially, to the extent that I could not lift it up from behind. I don't know physics, but this seemed impossible and defied the laws of gravity. I picked up the ruby in the front, and it was light as a feather. I finally gave up and searched the back of the necklace for a clasp, my heart racing and sweat pouring down my face. I wanted nothing more than to be out of this room and back in my car. There was no clasp to be found, and the necklace now felt as if it was getting tighter and tighter around my neck. It took every bit of my strength not to scream. The harder I tried to pull the necklace off my neck, the harder it weighed down on the back of my neck. I knew when I looked in the mirror, there would be scratches there, and I gasped out in pain. Suddenly, 
Out of nowhere, the necklace bounced upward, and I was able to grab it off my neck, removing it as easily as I had put it on. I threw it into the box, under the photograph of my great-great-grandmother, and ran out of the room as fast as I could. As I reached the landing of the stairs to head downstairs, I heard the same grumbling voice belonging to a woman that said, Just go. Go. My feet likely did not touch the stairs as I flew down them and into the kitchen to tell my great-aunt what had happened. When I got downstairs, I asked her about the secret and expressed that I had finally figured it out. She confirmed to me that I had, indeed, figured out what my great-grandmother had been hiding and that, as seemingly insignificant as this secret was to me, it meant a great deal to our family that no one found out. I wanted to tell her what happened to me upstairs, but I knew that, even being a superstitious old woman, she would never believe me. I simply told her I found a ruby necklace that I also saw in an old photograph of her grandmother. That was impossible, she claimed. No such necklace existed in the house. The necklace was brought back when my great-great-grandmother was turned away at Ellis Island and was buried with her in Portugal. When she arrived, she was deemed unfit due to her illness, and her children were allowed through, to be looked after by a related family that immigrated at the same time. They never saw her again. She, along with all her belongings, were sent back, so there was no possible way the necklace could have been upstairs. She loved that necklace, and died with it around her neck. Her remaining family overseas, knowing how much she loved that necklace, could not bring themselves to remove it from her, even in death. I insisted that it was upstairs, and conquering all my fear, ran upstairs as fast as I could to grab it. I lifted up the photograph in the box, but the necklace was gone. There was no trace of it anywhere. It was as if it had been a figment of my imagination, or had vanished into thin air. As I turned around, the attic door began to creep open, as if pushed open by a draught. It could have been a draught, but it still sent me running back down the stairs. I did not turn to look behind me. I said my goodbyes and ran out the front door, never to return. When I pick up my great aunt at the holidays now, I remain in my car, remembering the experience I had upstairs. To this day, I have nightmares about being strangled to death in the attic. My Friend's Story, The Imp, by Cobb Zeppelin, 99. One of my best friends, whose name I am not going to use, used to live in a haunted house. He grew up in a spiritual family, very religious. One year ago they moved out of a house which is four miles from where I live now, and about five from where he lives. They lived in a small house in a small neighbourhood. The house had an entity in it, called an imp. Now, according to what they have told me, it was not quite a demon, but very close. They are similar to a poltergeist, and somewhat similar to a demon, almost like a combination of the two. They said this entity could move very fast, was shaped like a large black ball, and could go invisible when it chose to willingly. One of the first nights they moved into that house, my friend's younger brother and his mother saw it with a clear sight. My friend described it to me as more of something you would see in the corner of your eye, not usually a close look. He never actually saw it up close like they did. They bought a dog to live in the house with them, 
because they didn't feel very comfortable. Sometimes in the middle of the night, the dog would wake up growling, and following something while it would sniff at the ground. This was always when it was invisible. My friend, every night, would put a tall glass of water next to his bed to drink if he got thirsty during the night. Almost every morning, he would wait to find the glass had less than an inch of water in it. One night, his older sister, whose name I will also not mention, woke up while sleeping in her room. She would always lock her doors and windows in that house. She thought someone was at the door. She opened the door and saw what she thought was their black cat. She let it in and locked her door again. The next morning she woke up and realised that the cat was not in the room, or anywhere in sight. She asked the family if they took the cat out of her room, and they all said that they had not been in there. They believed the imp took the form of a black cat to get inside of her room. My friend tells me that this house did not only have this imp in it, but other lost spirits. There would be random wandering spirits in the house of people they did not know. They would be in their rooms sometimes, and random people would be standing there with no expressions on their faces. They finally decided to move out of that house and into the house they live in now, which is a 10-15 minute walk from mine. They were all sitting on their couch the night before the move. My friend told them that in the first time he had a close encounter with this entity, he heard a very deep, evil voice whisper in his ear, Hey, you. They did move, but found out from their current neighbours that the neighbourhood had quite a few houses with similar entities lurking inside them. Hi guys, thank you so much for listening to today's video. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you did, make sure to like and also subscribe to the channel, making sure you hit that notification bell so that you know when the next video goes live. So, until next time, sleep tight.